Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hi, this is Tina. Welcome to Speaking of Racism. Right now, it is June of 2020, and we are releasing this conversation that I had with Ebony Janice back in March before the viral lynching videos of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd being killed were released. And back in March, when we had this conversation, it was just at the very beginning of the national quarantine and shelter-in-place orders had begun. So right now, as I am on a personal sabbatical, and as marches, protest rallies are happening all across the country in response to state-sanctioned anti-Black violence. I listened to this conversation I had with Ebony Janice just a few months ago, and in the midst of a new revolution of what some are calling the new civil rights movement, where our country is now more than ever supporting many of the precepts and principles of the Black Lives Matter movement. This conversation with Ebony Janice feels like a deep sigh. It feels like a move forward as well as a return to thinking about Black joy and how joy is integral in all of our efforts and work towards Black liberation, justice, equity, and the dismantling of systemic racism. So as we hold present the fire of the times, let us also carve out just a few moments to be and breathe and to listen as I start this conversation with Ebony Janice. Welcome Ebony Janice to the podcast and we're gonna just waste no time because Mm -hmm. that's the way we do it and I know as soon as I start asking you just anything general just like how are you you go into (laughs) deep analytical like super spiritual metaphysical place and I don't want to miss any of that so how are you doing ready set go okay (laughs) that's funny thank you for having me in the event that the listeners hear some like little tinkling and moving around it's because I'm doing my makeup as we record this I'm doing my makeup and social distancing by myself because I feel like I want to have my face beat every single day but I'm I'm actually doing well. I feel very grateful for my health. So that's number one. But the other thing is kind of we all ask for this. Mm. Of course we didn't ask for sickness and for we didn't we didn't specifically ask for sickness. We didn't specifically ask for people to be dying. We didn't specifically ask for it in this way. But we have collectively asked for this in a couple different ways. Everybody want to stay at home and work from home and make their own schedule and begging for that. You know, ooh, if I just had this time. And then now here we are where you have this time. And um, even, even some of my school teacher friends where 
you know, if you, if, when you work in the place of school, you go to school and there are definitely periods of time when you're not specifically working. You might not be teaching, you might not be, you know, hall monitor. There are times, but because you're at that place, it feels like, okay, I was at work all day long. But a lot of my school teacher friends, as they have had to transition their classroom into, uh, onto online, they are waking up in the morning and literally creating their schedule in a way that benefits them. Hopefully, you know, all of them are, all of us are doing that, but that's what so many of my school teacher friends are doing. And so it's like, wake up in the morning and there's a 7.30 a.m., you know, meeting, you know, on Zoom, whatever. So wake up just to get on that meeting and then go back to sleep until 10 a.m. And then wake up at 10 a.m. to be ready to teach class by 10.30. And, you know, and so when you think of it that way, when you think of how so many people have been asking to have more time, if I could just get more sleep, if I could just, and we have troubled that um, in social media world where it's like everybody doesn't have the same 24 hours as Beyonce. And that is true. Beyonce has a nanny, Beyonce has, you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. But now here we are given just a little bit more control. It's scary, of course. I'm not minimizing that side of it. I'm just thinking, what? how can we look at it from a perspective that really empowers us to a certain extent? And so that's the one, we've asked for, one way we've asked for it. I think another way that, and when you ask me how I'm doing, I bring that up because as somebody who does work for myself and can still be at the house talking about, ooh, I just had, you know, a little bit more sleep, a little bit more time. Now I'm in a position where, beloved, what is the excuse? Please <laughs> tell me, what is the excuse now? And so really creating those, that space for myself. The other way that I do think kind of conversely that we have asked for it is that we have been unwell. We have been um, the systems that we live in, capitalism, right, of course, has overworked us and has exhausted us. And I live close to a hospital and a fire station. And so there are going to be sirens coming up the street in a second. Um, so all the things, you know, we, all of those things contribute to it. It's not just us individually. It's the system that we live in um, where we have been asking, what would it look like if we could, like, hit a full stop and slow down and... And in, in, in order to shift this without totally crashing everything, which, you know, we're crashing everything, and in order to shift this without crashing everything, what would it look like for it to slow down? And so I feel like we've asked for this because so many of us don't want to exist in this capitalist system. So many of us don't want to exist in the work grind. You grind, I, you know, you, you sleep, I grind, like that very unhealthy um, no time for your family, no time for just sitting in, let's, let's even separate family, no time for yourself, no time to just sit down somewhere and think like, if I did have, you know, 25 extra minutes with my, in my day, what would I do with them? And so I do feel in, in thinking about that, I feel grateful for the possibilities of this time as well. And I've been feeling, figuring out for myself, what does it feel like to lean into that? Um, in a hopeful way and not just be in kind of panic mode the way that I feel like I might have been a little bit in the earlier part of this and then also you know just kind of shifting over the latter part of last week into this into this week 
Yeah, I, I'm feeling that and seeing that as well so much, mm -hmm. um, especially online. There seem to be two different modes of being right now, and you let me know what you think about this. Mm -hmm. There okay. are the folks, but I love that you named people have, we have asked for this, we have asked for and, and really manifested time to ourselves, right? Because that sure. has been always, you know, that for so many people is what keeps us from going to the next level. It has kept us from writing the book, creating yeah. the product, delivering the service, all of the things. And so what I've seen is really interesting is that now that we have this time, one of two things is happening. People are either being creative and are just taking advantage of this opportunity to go inside and see what has been in there. What has your heart been calling you to do? What has the mm -hmm. voice been drawing you to do? So they have been super creative and just really being in that and moving in that direction of, yes. of being that creator, right? And coming up with following their heart and what that looks like. But then I also am seeing folks who are not being creative, but are clinging and are still waiting for and looking to the job, the boss, the corporation to tell mm -hmm. you what to do. Mm -hmm. So you're at home. Many folks who have been, um, you know, I'm seeing folks that have their businesses, for example, have shut down, their company mm -hmm. that they work for. Yeah. And they're still operating in complete, tell me somebody needs to tell me what to do because I don't know what to do now. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I think it's just scary. You know, people don't, I have a critique of it and I also have deep grace for it because I think that people don't know what to do with themselves. It feels terrifying to think about the idea of a, right now the, the conversation is more of a mortgage freeze, but not a rent freeze. Right. <laughs> so, right. Are we paying attention to that? Yeah, you can't tell people that they cannot leave their houses and go to their job that has been shut down, right? Like, even if we, I, I read somebody say that they're, um, they're um, the, the apartments that they live in, their um, landlord reached out to them and said, or they had said something about not working because of the shutdown and the landlord said, find another job. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that actually more than once and it's like, really wow. and um but so i think about this very recently um a couple days ago in new york they closed the barbershops and you know everything which you know of course is like oh no now it can't even be cute <laughs> and um and so when you think about that when you think about like who are the essential workers people that still have to go to work mm -hmm. they're even in that regard, if all of us are either laid off, fired, businesses closed, or just on hold, you know, kind of indefinitely, um, especially people like you and I who have, we exist inside of gig economy, you know, where we need the event to exist and yeah. not get canceled because that is a bulk of a major bulk of our income for a lot of us. Right. And so you can't tell those people go get another job when there are no other jobs. And even if we were to all flock towards the essential spaces, uh, um, a huge portion of the essential jobs right now 
are require a license or a degree. We can't all go be nurses and doctors. So that's number one. And then number two, and or working at a grocery store. And even if we all were like, okay, well, we, I'm going to get a job at the grocery store. There's only so many, you know, jobs at the grocery store or at UPS or at United States Postal Service, right? Like it's only so many jobs that are available in this time. And so, so just thinking about the idea of like, you don't know where your income is coming from. And there's kind of, there's kind of nothing you can do about it. And you've not ever really been entrepreneurial. So it's not even a conversation of like, Ooh, now I'm going to start a business. And then even inside that, um, for those of us who do offer a service or have a product or da 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 whatever, there is also the fear of like, well, if everybody's, if everybody's kind of had to slow down and shut down, do people have extra money to pay for this service or this class or this workshop or this online thing? And so even, you know, kind of thinking through that. So I, so I have a, I have a critique of it. Like, okay, we've been begging for the time to take a nap. We've been begging for the time to slow down. We've been begging for the time. And then I also understand that um, there's this fear of like, but after we wake up from that nap, we still got to pay this rent. And after we wake up from that nap, we still have to pay this, you know, this light bill. But another thing I want to say about that, and then, you know, we can, we can transition from this if you want to, because I can stay on it. But another thing that I'm thinking about, about that is I have been talking about, um, I just randomly started taking this online uh, course um, with Miriam Hasna, who is a healer and a, I mean, just a beautiful spirit um, guide and, um, and she has this online uh, course on her website. Anyways, I've, so there are several courses, there's several modules inside the course. And the module that I have been on part one and part two is how to raise your vibration. So thinking about uh, vibration, thinking about frequency has been a major something that I've been doing like right before this happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, and thinking, so frequency, I've talked about, I've been talking about this so much that I feel like if you listen to any of my Zooms with friends, I got a new little show coming out that I've been like behind the scenes recording, you know, conversations for the last week or so. And um, so I feel like I may have said this at least, or a piece of this at least once in every single episode of my Zooms with friends is coming up, but whatever. We can hear it several times so that we can really think about it. Absolutely. Everything is vibrating. Even the little, like, because color, color has a vibration. Like if that wasn't green and it was bright red, it would be a completely different energy in this background here in my apartment, right? And so that green is for something. The, the vibration of that color green, even the two different colors, even the two different textures, right? There's a completely different, um, I'm pointing to my wall, there are, um, vines on coming down my wall and then my couch and so they're green and so my couch is also like a soft green so there's two different textures so texture has a certain energy and vibration and shifts and can shift like even the texture can shift the thing like if this wasn't this soft kind of um, material and it was leather that would be a completely different vibration right so every single thing has a vibration even color even texture even um, this uh, sirens in the background, I don't know if you can hear them, but even, even the sirens in the background, sound, you know, is a vibration. It is an energy. This, there's an energy that comes. If we took just one note from the siren and just held that note, even, even that one note is its own individual vibration. 
And so the extending it to a certain, you know, like it's, I'm just trying to explain, like thinking about vibrations as more than just um, good vibes only, which is kind of a throwaway language that we use. Right. So because everything has a vibration, we understand then that we, like this full body, you know, that we are. As an individual person, I am vibrating 24-7. I never stop vibrating. Even when I'm asleep, there is a vibration. And depending on what I have my frequency, what my dial is set to, or what frequency I'm set to, that will be how I show up in a space. So even if this isn't language that you are used to, Let's say you walk in a room and everybody has a bad, you walked in the room and you were just on cloud nine and you walked in the room and everybody is grieving because they just found out that Kenny Rogers died, right? And so you walked into that room and you were in a good mood, but the vibration, the frequency that that room is set to is mourning and grief. So you walk in on cloud nine, that is what you're vibrating but the room, the collective energy of the room is set to a completely different frequency than you. So what can happen and what happens very often is we get sucked into the frequency of whatever is going on in the collective space. And it feels very difficult for us to maintain whatever frequency we were dialed into when we walked into the space or when we showed up in that space. And so in that way, when we think of it that way, as individuals, we may not have been asking for this global pandemic, but the collective has been unhealthy, not taking care of ourselves, eating very poorly, um, not washing our hands, not washing our behinds, not, you know, like, and so when you have this collective group of people who are not, don't have their frequency set to good health, happiness, joy, ease, peace, rest, you know, when that is not what we've been set to, but you as the individual may have been set to that. If you don't know how, if you're not being intentional about that, where you're dialed into, and if you don't know how to steer away from or come into the collective and influence the collective vibration, then you also can very easily get sucked into that vibration. And that is what can happen to us, even in this time. You and I may be at the house trying to chill and then but the collective is panicking. So somebody's, you chilling, you fine. You like, we gonna make it and God is gone and you good. And then somebody slides into your DMs and says, they about to shut your city down. You better get out of town. You better um, go buy some more rice and beans. You better, and then all of a sudden, so that vibration, it isn't even a face-to-face -face exchange, but they brought that frequency, that vibrational tune into your dms into your private space and all of a sudden if you are not equipped to steer in the other direction where you are headed towards ease and peace and love and joy and and light you will immediately be like well maybe i mean i thought i was good maybe i need to go you know buy some more maybe i do need to get out of town maybe i do need to and so this is understanding um not to blame the people because it's an institutional like if the institution is set to a certain frequency of course we're gonna all like be in panic mode wait a minute this system that we have been depending on even though it hasn't served us is shut down it's crashing and we know that the most vulnerable end up being hurt the most what are we going to do what are we going to do so that's not at all to blame us as individuals but that's to say how do we show up from day to day as individuals in a way that can still we can still find a little bit of joy a little bit of ease a little bit of peace and i don't even know 
what the question was anymore, but I do want to end that little rant by saying <laughs> um, that's part of the reason why um, I had mentioned earlier that, you know, and you see me, I'm sitting here doing my makeup because, you know, there are little things. They feel so like, okay, girl, are you kidding me? You're stuck in the house by yourself. Why are you getting dressed and putting on makeup and doing all the things? It's because, again, going back to the beginning of what I was saying when I started talking about frequencies and vibrations and raising your vibration, if you understand color, if you understand texture, if you understand fabric, if you understand everything as having an energy, then you understand like, putting on my little metallic press on nails and, you know, putting green eyeshadow on, even though it ain't got nothing to do with nothing. You know, those things are like contributing to me being grounded, me being here in this moment, me feeling good about myself, me feeling, you know, pretty, me feeling whatever. And all of those things support me as an individual and raising my vibration. And if me as an individual is supported in raising my vibration. Then I show up on a scene and I talk to Tina and then I support Tina's at the, at the very least in either maintaining her wellness and or raising her vibration. And then we are the two, we're sitting here having a conversation and maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people will listen to this conversation. And then there's this collective shift that happens. And, 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 and those individuals that listened can take that, you know, take that learning, that understanding, that vibration, that energy, that hope, and, you know, share that onward, onward, onward. Yeah. And share that and, and continue it and further it mm -hmm. and grow it and everything. Yeah, and deepen it. And, and exactly, you know, I, I, every mm -hmm. time I come or every time I know I'm going to have a conversation with you now that I've come to, we've had many conversations now and we got to meet in person mm -hmm. when, um, my wife and I came to New York city. Um, gosh, I guess it's only been a little over a month ago. And so just being in your presence, literally. Yeah, yeah. So every time now I know I'm about to have a conversation with Ebony and Denise, I get so excited. So I love how you even just, you, you just explained about the vibration. And I just even think about the anticipation of being in a conversation mm. with you and I get lifted. I, and that just is a beautiful thing. And that, that is, oh, I, I just, that is one of the reasons why I was so excited that you agreed to come and, and talk with me on the podcast because this is mm -hmm. going to be such a joy creation and such a, a, a life giving mm. and um, just some love for yeah. our, our, our audience. So thank you. I, you know, as you're talking, of course, as we're, as we're talking, as I'm listening to you, I'm imagining people listening going, who is this? I feel, <laughs> I, am, I am connecting. I, we feel like you're preaching you. And so let's kind of talk about that. Let's talk about you as a womanist scholar of hip hop. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that because this, this, you feel like church to me in a good way. That's not even necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I come from a, in my background, in my childhood, I have some mm -hmm. baggage with the church. Of course. Mm -hmm. But then I also still have a lot of touch points that feel like home to me. Mm -hmm. And so I listen to you and it sounds like listening to my mother and my grandmothers and all of the beauty that I still have as a part of my life and as a part of my heart from church. Why do you feel like church to me? Why do we, why do I feel like you're preaching when you're just really just being, you're just Ebony Janice showing up, having a conversation. What is that about? <laughs> 
Thank you, because I am the body of Christ. I am. So it should feel like church, shouldn't it? Whew. Thank you for that. That's such a kind affirmation. Mm. I feel actually really emotional about that huge affirmation because I got baggage with the church too. Mm-hmm. And um, dang, that is so beautiful. Thank you for that. So my background is ministry. I grew up in a Baptist church. I've been preaching since I was, I've been teaching Sunday school since I was five, six years old. I've been preaching since I, from the pulpit since I was eight. And um, I, I did have a, a, a theological shift in my late 20s, early 30s that causes me to not particularly identify as Christian anymore, but Jesus is a thing for me. And um, my sacred text or the sacred text that I pull from most frequently uh, is the Bible and hip hop, um, those two sacred texts. And I, I say that because I had the revelation, like even before I realized that hip hop was the sacred text I was pulling from, I am a millennial black woman who was raised in the black church and simultaneously. So two of the greatest influences of my language, of the way that I move, the way that I exist in this world was hip hop and church and or church and hip hop right there. It feels like I'm in a space in my life where it would be neglectful of myself, of my full self to say, you know, one more than the other when that's just not reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I quote, often Jay-Z more than I quote the Apostle Paul, you know, and I, and, and there's wisdom. And I found when I um, went to seminary and started getting language for what it was, the work that I was already doing between hip hop and this scripture, um, I found that it was an ethical issue, both externally and, you know, for myself as an individual, for me to exclude hip hop from what is holy, what is righteous, what is sacred, what is, you know, worthy. Um, Because in the same way that I feel like we need to interrogate, um, we need to interrogate JD and his ethics, you know, we need to be able to say, this is wisdom, but this is problematic. Uh, Abraham sold his wife, like gave her away at some point. And like, it was whole plagues because the king was like, wait a minute, this is not your sister. Why would you do this to us? And, um, And Jacob and all of them, all of them at some point, there is not one um, other than Christ. You know, there is not one inside this text, inside the Bible as a sacred text, other, other than Jesus Christ. There is no one who was without blemish. There's no one. All of them were ashy at some point, every single one of them. And so if we, what we're doing with the Bible, particularly from a Christian perspective, is if we're able to still talk about Moses as a great hero of faith and who goes on to become the father of three you know of the most major world religions and if we could talk about abraham without being like abraham was a fuck nigga sorry Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. if we can if we can do that without like you know without bringing up how ash he was or um tamar's father who gets you know like way too much love and affirmation and you know she was trigger warning and i would give that moment she was raped you know brutally and the grief that we experience in this text is not about her being raped the grief is that the brother has to kill the other brother that's the grief that's what is emphasized there is not a moment 
growing up in the church when this particular text is preached, if at all, we don't get that grief. We don't get that moment. We don't get the grief for Hagar, who could not consent because she was a slave. You know, we don't get that grief. We don't get, we get like this, let's just keep moving forward. Let's not acknowledge that, you know, this is sex trafficking that's happening. Let's not acknowledge that this is slavery in a in the sense that, you know, it's it's perverted. It's not the traditional understanding of what was happening for you pay off your debt. It was like, your debt will never be paid. You're here for life, you know? Um, and so I'm doing the same thing in hip hop. I'm saying, Abraham said something, this is wisdom right here, but also Abraham was trash in places. I'm saying the same thing with, you know, Lil Wayne. This is trash, a lot of it, and this is problematic. And a lot of those things we see showing up in our sacred texts, it's the reason, it, because especially because of the interpretation of it, it is very patriarchal centering. Um, and, um, and so, you know, men, mostly white men, get to interpret it for us and tell us what this means and what, how we should value it. And very similarly in hip hop, if male voices are dominant in that space, there is there's no room for an Ebony Janice to show up and be like, first of all, hip hop wouldn't exist without black women. And then second of all, let's talk about where what is prophetic about this language and where we're going if we don't start really interrogating what's happening in these lyrics. And so I feel like that may that even though I've had, you know, a slight theological shift, I never surrendered completely this text because I feel like we get the opportunity to talk about morals and we get to talk about racism and we get to talk about discrimination and we get to talk about revolution and we get to talk about love and we get to talk about passion and we get to talk about um patriarchy and we get to talk about deceit and lies like all the things are there and so i don't i can't surrender that completely because there is um there is a lesson for us there and if we miss it it will be because we you know threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know for lack of better language and very similarly that's where i am with hip-hop so i think sometimes often not sometimes often when i talk um it may feel like church because i'm never stopped preaching even if this isn't my very specific you know religious spiritual um journey in that way any longer i'm never stopped preaching this gospel because it does inform me there are times when the only thing that can ground me is fred hammond or you know gospel music or um or a negro spiritual or just moaning or just you know speaking in tongues because english ain't gonna work or you know or or, or whatever and then simultaneously because there is this language of hip-hop that can can be considered secular but i don't consider it the secular i consider it sacred there's this language of hip hop and I kind of live in between the two of them and both of them are sacred and holy to me. So it always feels like, are we going to have church or are we going to like, what are we about to do here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful because the way that you marry the two and the way that you embody both so beautifully and so unapologetically. And mm. it, just, it just comes through as love. It comes. And so mm. I think that's, that's what I connect to about you and with you so thank you for that thank you thank, thank you. you for saying so will you speak to womanism is to feminism yes so um womanism i identify as a womanist um above calling myself a feminist or a black feminist because um womanism is black women's 
um, language that Alice Walker coined, um, credited in the book, um, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, um, had used that language a little bit before that, but that's where we get this definition where she really starts to break down the definition of womanism. And it's a four part definition, but the part four of that definition says womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. And ultimately what Alice Walker is suggesting with that um, statement is that womanism is black women's deeper feminist work. And um, I deeply lean into that because what I, what I find is that womanism in its def definition and in the, in the origins and in the earlier years of both the black women theologians identifying themselves as womanist theologians, um, because always my spiritual religious um, identity is showing up even in my justice work, even in, you know, whatever else it is that I'm doing. And then also as just Black women who were doing political activist justice work um, felt very excluded from feminist work, the language of womanism felt like home for them. And so womanism in its inception was intersectional. There was if there's a specific line in the in Alice Walker's definition, she says, not a separatist, except occasionally for times of health. And that in that she's troubling, like, um, not a separatist as in like um, other groups of people outside of black women and um, femme identifying people cannot exist here and cannot be loved in this space, even though that language of womanism does belong specifically to black women. Um, and even and even men, it also was like this opportunity to say, Feminism, it um, can be very exclusionary and almost anti to men in, in ways, particularly in its foundation, and also because there was racism and also and also and also. And, um, and womanism was saying uh, sometimes loves women, sexually, loves women sometimes sexually, sometimes non-sexually, loves men sometimes sexually, sometimes non-sexually. And so in that definition, womanism was very clearly saying we're not anti-men and we can't exclude them because our racial identity is a, it informs our womanism. It informs the, you know, black feminist work that we're doing. It informs this gender equality work that we're doing. And, um, I identify with that, what um, Joan Morgan, who would years later, of course, go on to identify herself as a hip hop feminist. And she says, um, she says very specifically, the difference between black feminists uh, in this time and white feminists is black feminists, uh, white feminists didn't call their men brother. And that is huge because she was ultimately identifying like that brother relationship means that black women in so many ways have taken ownership of these men. Even, and what it means for us to take ownership of them, like when they are raggedy, we are here to say this is raggedy. Mm -hmm. And I know it's raggedy, but raggedy is the way that I want to say it. Um, I wasn't going to correct you, so I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when they're, <laughs> no, I know you wouldn't have, but I know that this is a mixed audience. So, you know, code switching a little bit. Let, yeah. me, let me translate. And, you know, <laughs> if I were to speak in French, I would give a little translation. So since I'm speaking in, you know, Black girl, you know, African-American vernacular English, let me translate a little bit. Um, and so, so she, she goes on to say, Joe Morgan goes on to say, we needed a feminism that could fuck with the grays. And what that means is that very often we get to these spaces where it's like either you're completely canceled or, or how can we find reconciliation in this? And, and black feminists at that time, and then what womanism, that definition of womanism is saying is like, no, we need the kind of feminism that's available to be able to interrogate like what's really happening here. 
from a socioeconomic perspective, from a spiritual religious perspective, from a class perspective, from a, like all of the, bringing all those things in and being able to, you know, what she says again, a quote, you know, fuck with the grays, maneuver and understand it deeply and intimately. And very often these other types of, this other language specifically of feminism, even more specifically white feminism, didn't really have a framework um, at its foundation that was able to support that, that was able to support the grays, especially because it wasn't trying to fuck with the grays. It was trying to exclude the blackness, the grays, the browns completely in it in and of itself. So it definitely wasn't equipped to fuck with the grays. And um, so that's where my, my womanism, womanism is the feminism. Um, I'm, you know, obviously pulling from that Alice Walker quote in that definition, but I have this lecture series, Womanism is the Feminism as Purple is the Lavender, where I'm talking, I'm teaching about womanism and I'm teaching to a mixed group of people. I'm inviting black women in a way into this language, into the deepening of community and the sisterhood. And I'm inviting other women who are non-black um, into this space not to be able to identify themselves as womanist because womanism, like I said, is very specific black woman language, but to be able to learn from um, and cite their sources and cite how, you know, growing in community because we can't just leave it up to feminism in its evolution, right? Like we're like four waves into feminism and still trying to figure out what it looks like to stir the marginalized voices in the room when womanism ultimately is asking us to walk into the room and pass the mic to the person who is what we would least likely to be hearing from anyways. And, um, and so what would it look like for white feminist leaders to be willing to surrender um, the microphone, you know, and, and um, learn from people who know something about their stuff because we have to in this um, white supremacist society, but also know something that they have no clue about because they haven't ever had to exist inside of the multiple experiences that we live in. And because womanism is inherently intersectional, um, because woman womanism is inherently, you know, I'm doing quote fingers, fucking with the grays. Womanism, even as a as a black woman, allows me to walk into the room and where very often I might be the most marginalized voice. Womanism supports me in having the capacity and the language to say, but also I'm able-bodied and there are disabled um, people in this space that we very rarely hear from and or, but also I have access to education. And so, and there are people who are existing inside communities that know something. My education doesn't mean I know more than them. It just means that I know something about this that they might not know. So let me learn from them. Let me um, lift those voices and lift the knowing of that so that we can collectively create something instead of just always centering my cis heterosexual, you know, like all of the ways that I do exist inside of certain privileges and, you know, in spaces where I might normally have the microphone if that, you know, is a thing. That's very rarely a thing. Right. I mean, unless I go take the mic. <laughs> you know, when when I think of the critical intentionality of Black authority and leadership, mm -hmm. I think about you and the way that you unapologetically mm. stand in your truth, in your voice, and in what you're teaching, as you just explained so clearly and remarkably feminism is to womanism as, um, where did that come from? Your authority seems to come from somewhere else. Mm, 
I feel like my work is decolonizing authority. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this revelation that authority was colonized. I didn't have that language, but it certainly was about 15 years ago. I definitely didn't have that language. That language is maybe like four years old, if that, you know, three, four years old. But I was, I, I was I'm not certified to teach yoga at all. Um, but I was the first person, because I grew, again, I grew up in a Christian church. So of course, I grew up in a space where yoga was demonic. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was the first person in my community, maybe period, that may be like a full stop kind of statement. Not even like one of the first, I was the first person in many spaces in my community that was doing yoga. And uh, I was only doing yoga. It took me a minute to even get there, but I was only doing yoga because I had some medical issues and my doctor was like, girl, (laughs) this is what you need to be doing um, between yoga and Pilates. Um, These are the things that will be good for you to transition in this healing. And so I tried it out. I was so deep and spooky though. Oh my God, I was so super saved. I would be in yoga at the end instead of like, or participating instead of doing own. I would be like, hallelujah. <laughs> so much, Tina. Like, this is ridiculous. And um, I wouldn't say namaste. I'd be like, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> this is so much drama. But... The first time I ever did yoga, it was, it wasn't scary because it was in a corporate space. I used to work for uh, UPS um, in their corporate office. There's a gym. And so of course we weren't in there like doing all the things that can happen in yoga. So it was a very surface level introduction to yoga, really more focused on the physical. And um, we got to Shavasana and I started sobbing because I realized that I had never been that still in my life ever, mm. ever. I feel emotional thinking about it right now. I, I, I never have been that. I mean, you know how many times I had laid at an altar praying at that point in my life or, you know, like I, I realized there was no real mindfulness practice, practice. And I didn't have this language for it, but that's what I was realizing. There was no real mindfulness practice inside of my relationship with God at the time. It was like very guided, you know, nothing was a personal experience, even the stuff that I thought was my personal relationship, you know what I'm saying? And I cried to the point that the instructor had to come over and lay her hand on my chest, like right on my heart area to help me calm down. And I'm very grateful for that because she and I had a conversation before class. She probably she probably was tickled as a matter of fact because I had asked her like, is it going to be demonic? Is it going to be, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. And um, so I felt very grateful for that. And um, that's my, so that's my introduction to yoga. And then at that point I was a convert, of course. Like you can't never make me stop doing yoga now. Like it's nothing that anybody could say, y'all could find a scripture in the Bible that I had never read that said, yoga is the devil. And I would still be like, somebody lied to you. (laughs) This Bible is lying. This ain't true, period. And um, and that's for real. Like I was, I, was I have to affirm that as a black woman who is a yoga teacher and a yoga student, and I have mm-hmm. had conversations with my 
my my daddy who is a preacher who yeah, was yeah. a preacher and he's like well you don't do any of that yoga meditation stuff do you <laughs> absolutely i do some of that yoga and meditation stuff so yeah i just had to, sure. just had to go ahead and co-sign on that oh yes i mean in 2020 the year of our lord i still have people in my family that um will send me an illuminati youtube video not the illuminati youtube videos yeah, i'm talking about I was doing my research. This is not research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's a, that was a thing, but you, at that point I was a convert, you know, it's no, ain't no turning back here. You know, I have experienced this for myself. I have a deep personal, intimate, um, knowing that this has healed something in me and that's just period. And, um, so I, but I couldn't convince everybody in my family how powerful, or in my community at the time, how powerful it was. Um, so I, so I started, so, so what I mean, what I'm getting to is that there was no way that I was convincing them to go take a yoga class with me. I was able to take one because it was at my job, but like outside to another studio or, you know, that wasn't happening. So I started doing yoga classes, like leading yoga classes for individuals in my family. I mean, I got literally no, no certification, no teaching, no understanding. All I know is I'm just going to copy whatever the instructor did at the last class. I'm going to bring those things into this classroom and into this space, you know, my living room to, you know, whatever. And um, it was so transformative for so many of my, my little niece at the time was eight years old and like would get to Shavasana and would just be sleep. Like I'm talking about snoring sleep. She done went so in mm -hmm. and um, been jumping out, you know, out the window all day long. And then all of a sudden she's, this experience has done something for her that has allowed her to, you know, relax and feel in, you know, be in her body and, um, and feel safe enough to be laying in the middle of this floor, just, you know, knocked out. And I was having so many of those experiences. And so I'm, I used that example because what happened for me was, and again, I didn't have this language. I realized that authority was colonized. I hadn't even gone deeper into my understanding of it now. Um, uh, it, like really dealing with the racial aspect of how authority is colonized, that yoga belonged to somebody. Like this was somebody's actual spiritual practice. And then, but in the United States of America, if you were to get certified to teach yoga, you're more than likely to be being certified by somebody white. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so how, how audacious it was to assume that somebody who this wasn't even their actual practice. This doesn't belong to their people. They're, they're as new to it as I am in a lot of ways that they had more credibility than, than my spirit, than my inner knowing, than my soul did to tell me that I was equipped to, even if I was just on step one, I was equipped to serve these people who wasn't even on step one yet. They, they're not even at step zero. They up the street trying to figure out if they even want to walk in this direction. And so I was credible, period, to them. They were never, ever going to be doing yoga with the people who can do a handstand on their fingertip, you know, like ever. They're never taking that class. To this day, we're talking, what, 15 years later. And to this day, they're still not taking a class with that person. But I'm very credible to them in being able to walk them through certain things or whatever. So that was kind of the beginning of some of my, like, this authority piece is very colonized. 
because if I am to wait for somebody, like who put, who put you in charge? Who made you the credentialing body? Um, especially because so much, so many credentialing bodies are very white centered. Most credentialing bodies are very white centered and the audacity to be in charge of something that you just discovered 27.3 minutes ago, um, <laughs> is a very, you know, like white supremacist ideology. And that, that really was the beginning of it. But there also was some stuff that I had going on with like, uh, inside of my, um, preachment prior to my, you know, theological shifting inside of my preachment that, um, Ooh, I hope he don't listen to this podcast, but I'm going to throw him under the bus right now. Um, my child, a childhood friend of mine is now the pastor of the church that we grew up at. And um, we, I mean, childhood friend, like he's a year and some change older than me, literally don't have a lifetime of not knowing him. And um, when I was ready to get licensed, um, I wanted the church that I grew up at even though I wasn't specifically Baptist at the time any longer, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I wanted the church that I grew up at to license me. And so I reached out to him and um, we kind of went through some processes, da, 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 whatever. And then, but it was, but it was just taking forever. I mean, legit, we were like two, two years into this. Now, mind you, I've been preaching as long as him. And, um, and that's just the reality. I've been preaching as long as he had been preaching, you know, we're kind of the two um, young people in our church who have been in the pulpit as since babies, really. And um, time passed, it's like two years. And I remember having a conversation with him and he said, yeah, I know that, you know, we, we've gone through all the things. Um, I know that God has called you. I'm just waiting to hear from God about timing now. And that, I, that went off in my head and I was like, think about the audacity mm-hmm. of this man. Like God got to tell him that it's time for me, me, him, my age mate, my, you know, contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, this man has authority over me now. And this is, and I love him. So ooh, I hope he don't listen to this. If he do, <laughs> it is what it is. But we had the same amount of education. Actually, I've had more. Mm-hmm. and. Um, it is what it is. I mean, and that's, you know, that's it. And um, I've had more education. We have pretty much the same amount of years of um, preaching, teaching. I have built probably more curriculum than he has, you know, in a spiritual religious perspective. I've traveled international, done missions work at this point, all the things. So I'm, I'm evangelist. I've pastored. I've preached. I've done, I've done all the things um, in very non-traditional ways. And he really went the traditional route of, you know. Da, 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 whatever now he's a preacher in a pulpit and it just felt very audacious that this man would be in charge of saying you know god told me well, god already told me or i went to college you two years ago and said you know i want to be licensed by this institution and so that was another like really like real 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 um authority is colonized you know like like who authorized you to authorize me why is your why is your authority more credible than the authority of my knowing of my internal calling, et cetera, et cetera? And then one of the kind of the last, and this isn't the last thing, but I'll just to, so we can you know shift to where we're going from here. 
another major thing is that I got to the place where I realized that my ancestors, my lived experience and my education and my self-education, whether formal or self-education, all of those things made me so credible, make me so credible. And um, so it's this idea um, in white spaces that we all start on an even playing field. <laughs> ah, we don't. And I don't just laugh like that thinking about resources. I'm saying that we don't, we didn't even start kindergarten on an even playing field. Understand this. When I, by the time I started kindergarten, I was already equipped way more than any of my classmates to do many of the things that we were going to need to be able to do in kindergarten. And that's for most of us. If you grew up in a black church, you were more equipped than any of your classmates to do a great deal of the things that you would later be graded on. Um, and here's some examples. By kindergarten, I had already preached in a pulpit. You know, so public speaking, articulation, um, a handle on language, both uh, by, by first grade, I was already the junior assistant superintendent of Sunday school. <laughs> I was already the bell ringer after Sunday school was over. I was already helping to count the money. I was already taking minutes. I'm, I'm eight. <laughs> I'm eight. By the age of 10, I was already in charge of the kitchen at, the, at church. So I made the hot dogs and poured the juice. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the type of responsibility by, well, I can go back to, um, I'm talking about preaching from the pulpit, but even if you haven't been preaching since for as young as I have been, think about Easter speeches and Christmas speeches and black history plays. Before kindergarten, so many of us that grew up in the black church were already equipped to stand up and have public like, be you know be able to speak publicly and articulate and um deal with a certain amount of fear and you know maneuvering through that fright and that doesn't mean that we're not scared anymore but we've already had those experiences um another example that i often give and i put this on my resume and that's just what it, what it is i have 30 plus years of experience in several different areas one of them is equality or i can't think of the language right now but i'm gonna think of it as i tell this example when I was in the third grade, I, I remember having this revelation that all of our the poets in our poetry section, all the poetry, all the poets were white and uh, diversity and inclusion. So I had to say to my third grade teacher, whom I love, she didn't know no better, you know, Miss Luann Siebel, why don't we have any black poets? There are great black American poets. I was in the third grade, mm. and and that is. If you were, if you are currently in 2020, a diversity, like if you do diversity inclusion um, work and you go through curriculums and you help people to build their curriculum, that's the work you do. You basically just go through the curriculum and say, this is too white. <laughs> basically you go through the curriculum and say, here are some spaces where you can actually be inclusive. Here are some spaces in your, uh, in your daily, you know, working where you could, um, actually be considering the demographics of people that you're teaching, you know, as a result of me, you know, there were some things that actually shifted and I still have relationship with some of my elementary and high school, because I'm from such a small town, elementary and high school teachers who full blown, like, I wasn't even thinking about, you know, Zora Neale Hurston. I wasn't even thinking about, it's not that those books weren't important to me and or part of my own bachelor's and master's work in education. You know, this is some of my white teachers. 
It's just that I didn't have to. You know, the curriculum didn't call for it. Meanwhile, there's little Ebony Janice like, well, it needs to call for it today. <laughs> We're going to need to call for it. We're going to need to call for it. So there is this, um, I would say that's the eternal. You know, that's my ancestors before I had that language that has always kind of been showing up in me and being like, girl, you want to say something about this because if you don't, it'll just, it'll just be this or it'll be you know, the bare minimum, or you won't see yourself, or there won't be representation, or they're going to play you, or they're going to act like you didn't know the most in, or they're going to give credit to somebody else. And something in me, my grandmother raised six girls, so I grew up in a very matrilineal, you know, womanist um, existence in the first place. So that could be a part of it, like, as a, as a woman having to really, as a woman with, a, with this huge family full of women, willful women, knowing that if I was going to be heard, I was going to have to like do some cartwheels and, you know, make myself be seen and heard. Um, so some of that, of course, but I, I do think that it very spiritual in a lot of ways, like my ancestors been guiding me since I was a little girl to kind of show up and be like, this is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong guys. My aunt, I'm done. My aunt, my oldest aunt, I was talking to her a couple weeks ago. I called her to check on her. And she, and she out of nowhere brought up this story. She was like, I remember when you were a freshman in high school and she was the director of the gospel choir at uh, the school that I went to. And she was like, when you were a freshman and I closed my eyes while I was directing and the next thing I knew, you was on the microphone. <laughs> and she said, and I just learned the lesson right then and there. I cannot close my eyes when <laughs> Janice is too close to the microphone because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I'll say some of those things, but all of that, the journey that I went on to get to there, even if, you know, though I realized that people have drastically different stories than my own story, a lot of it was just these moments of being, of really having to interrogate, like, what's really happening here? That, how, how are you actually more credible than me? Even, even if you have had more years of traditional study, which is colonized, like the standards are, you know, colonized, um, you know, even if you've had more traditional education than me, my lived experience could actually trump even your education. And very often it does. Mm -hmm. um, one of the last examples I give of colonized authority is, you know, um, in the state of New Jersey, there was like a, you could get a $10,000 fine if you were braiding hair outside without having a license. But in the state of New Jersey, I think it was some like less than 5% of the actual beauty schools in the state of New Jersey actually taught hair braiding in their licensure program so they basically want you to go give them these thousands of dollars to get licensed to do hair even though you nobody can teach you because you made it up it's your stuff i mean even even like senegalese twists for example i mean they're called senegalese twists for a reason because they came from senegal so you so you have you know so somebody in these very predominantly white spaces is supposed to authorize me who authorized you Mm -hmm. so that is colonized and it it's a lot of that language that has really supported me and kind of showing up and at the very least being being what ready to ask like what do I what does my education my lived experience and my ancestors because I don't start from scratch I'm starting like on the shoulders of my mother my grandmother my the the beings that you know support me uh, you know even Jesus as my ancestor like I'm not starting from scratch even in that regard and then also just being very willing to ask, you know, like I said, ask that question, like, who authorized you? Who made you more credible than me? Even if I don't outwardly ask that question, I'm, I'm available to ask that question outwardly. But just kind of having that internal dialogue of like, as a, as a Black woman, 
who knows my black woman stuff and also my black stuff and also my woman stuff and also my right like thinking about all the stuff that i have to know inside the intersectional identities that i exist in which means that i know white men stuff they have no clue about my black woman stuff no clue i could speak in a language i said something recently on instagram and i used the word fast and a white man showed up on my comment section to say you feminists are something else i've never heard the word fast before first of all nobody was talking to you <laughs> that's number one number two um, I don't call myself a feminist, so, and I didn't say that anywhere, so why are you trying to tell me what I am, just because I'm talking about people calling black girls fast? And number three, all kinds of information exists that you've never had access to. Can you imagine? Imagine that. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that I wasn't thinking about you when this language was created? Can you even imagine? And so, yeah, lots of words to say my ancestors, education, lived experience, and just this kind of audacity that's like, if we're going to be free, we're going to be free. Today. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I meditated. I feel like I smoked a joint. I feel like <laughs> I went to church. I feel like all of those things in this moment. It is such a beautiful experience. Um, what you don't know, and I, I have been sharing this more recently with some of my audience and platform, is that I set out in 2020 intentionally to seek out my education and my learning specifically mm. from Black women. Mm, mm. And within a week or two of setting that intention, Guess wow. who the universe brings into my life? Wow. One Ebony Janice. And yeah. every single time I am in your presence and I get to listen, I my spirit, my soul is fed. And so it has been an incredible honor and true gift for us to be able to listen to you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me tell you one of my favorite things about talking with you. There are these moments... I mean, I, I could just be on a hundred thousand trillion all the time. And then you show up in the conversation and everybody says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping us breathe through this. This is, you know, um, I don't think this was as hard as it could have been. Cause we could have talked about some, you know, hard stuff, um, as we do from time, but even even in the midst of just you know kind of being playful, sometimes I feel like uh, I'm holding my breath, mm -hmm. and um, I learned that in yoga that I just be holding my breath sometimes. And you, the the forever yoga teacher, show up and remind us to remember our breath. Thank you for that. I receive it absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I honor you, my friend, my sister. Thank you for being a part of this uh, conversation and, and talking with us. So yeah, where, where can people find you and where would you like for them to go to get more information about your work um, and learning from you and listening to you? Um, I, I actually wanna say you had listed all the things that you felt like happened in this call but you didn't acknowledge that you also got a makeup tutorial. <laughs> you know what? We are sitting here. Let me tell the people. We are sitting here on Zoom. And 
literally, not only is she giving a full sermon, not only could you be taking notes in your program if you were in the black church like I was raised and like she was raised, you are, I, I am enjoying this beautiful, she's got, her face is just laid. It's, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. <laughs> you know, um, doing her face and cra- it's in, in yeah. the colors and the vibration of the colors while she yeah. has been speaking. That has been bringing me so much joy in the past, actually a couple months, but especially since we've been in, you know, social distancing and or quarantine. Um, just doing my makeup is such a meditation because I just sit there and it's also like, you know, healing worthiness work as well because I got to like look at myself for X amount of time. And mm-hmm. so a lot. I think it's, I'm, I'm playing, but also, you know, seriously, like the doing something for yourself, you know, every day in this time, especially in this time. Um, but just in general, you know, carrying that into your existence, doing something for yourself. So that's my little if I had one more thing to add, that's, that's you can find doing. me at Ebony Janice on Instagram and or really the best place to go, which is kind of lead you to everywhere is um, ebonyjanice.com. Janice looks like Janice, but it's not. It's J-A-N-I-C-E. Um, ebonyjanice.com. I'm available so much for growing in community with people, all, all types of people, but my space does center Black women. That's who I'm talking to. I uh, only translated, you know, certain language in this conversation specifically because I know that there is a diverse group of people who this is intentionally for. But my language is very decidedly for Black women and Black girls. But I'm very available for the overflow. Like, what does it look like? I think it benefits people, especially white people who are trying to heal from their racism and from their white supremacy, um, specifically. It benefits you to learn in a space that wasn't talking to you at all because you get to not be centered and you get to learn something and you get to see like a joy and the ease and the, you know, and the playfulness and the ways that we're healing in a very decidedly black women centered space. There is, there is something powerful about that. I I find it for myself in black women centered spaces. And I see it with the non-black women that follow me or that are supporting my work or that are learning from me. I see the way that they're being stretched and enlarged as well even though I'm not specifically talking directly to them, I'm talking about, you know, about us. And, um, and so it's, it's good for all of us. And that's why I wanted you to be on our, our podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm so grateful for you. All right. Well, we will end this with that. So everyone, ebonyjanice.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Speaking of Racism. We hope that you enjoyed this latest episode with Tina Strawn and Ebony Janice. And we wanted to let you know that in October, from October 9th to 11th, there will be a legacy trip that is co-led by Ebony Janice and Tina. Now, for those of you who are new to this space, you may not know what legacy trips are. Tina Strawn is the owner of Speaking of Racism podcast. She is an anti-racism educator, among many things, and she is also the founder of of Legacy Trips. Legacy Trips are three-day anti-racism and yoga trips to Montgomery, Alabama, where you will visit the Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration using the philosophy and the practice of yoga as tools to dismantle racism. You can go to LegacyTrips2020.com to learn more about upcoming trips. But the October trip is a unique one. It is specifically for black women, and we are currently looking to raise $10,000 to send 12 women 
on this trip. And all of the information on this GoFundMe can be found on our platforms. So follow us on Speaking of Racism on Instagram or Tina Strawn Life on Instagram. If you're a part of our Patreon community or a part of Tina's Patreon community, the information in the GoFundMe campaign will be in that. We need your help. We need you to help us fund this, share this, spread the word, and get other people involved in this. Help us to raise $10,000 and send 12 black women on this journey with Tina Strawn and Ebony Janice, October 9th through 11th. Thank you. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.